yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's crazy that we're in Job um, as this uh, coronavirus thing is kind of taking over the world. Uh, because the, the more that we get news reports, uh, the more people are panicked. Um, and, and we see, you know, pictures of people in the hospital uh, on ventilators. And it, it, it can get pretty, pretty scary. I mean, we're fortunate so far in Orange County, there's very few cases uh, so it hasn't really hit us yet, but we're kind of in this, we're, I mean, we're literally hunkered down in our homes and we're getting ready for what might take place. Um, and, and, and what might take place could be really, really bad. And we just have to be honest about that. We don't know. And we're um, praying and hoping for the best, but we're also at the same time preparing for the worst. Uh, and so if you are preparing for the worst, I did hear that Costco has some toilet paper available, so you may want to uh, just switch this off and hit them up before it gets taken. Um, but we do know how bad it can be. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, I don't know if you saw this news report, but uh, the Fusco family in uh, in New Jersey, uh, do we have a picture of them? Yeah, they, uh, so on the, on the far left is Elizabeth Fusco, she's the youngest of 11 kids, and in the center uh, is her mom. Last week, uh, three of her siblings and her mom all died uh, from complications of coronavirus, of COVID-19. Um, and of course, because uh, our journalists in this country are responsible, empathetic people, they uh, barged into her house and put a camera in front of her face and, and a microphone, and they said things like, how do you feel? And she said things like, I feel very sad, I feel numb. And she said, all I know how to do is, is keep cooking. Uh, interestingly for her, uh, when she was growing up in this family of 11 kids, her mom, no matter how bad things got, no matter what happened, her mom would just make sure to always prepare a meal. So breakfast, lunch, dinner, always on it. And so she, she kind of took that on. And so her way right now of dealing with the shock um, and, and the emotional and psychological damage is that she's making sure there's dinner for um, her grieving brothers and sisters who remain alive for her own family. And, and it's, it's crazy that right now in New Jersey, we have a woman who basically has gone through exactly the same thing that Job went through. You know, the last couple of weeks, we've acknowledged the fact that Job lost 10 kids. Uh, things were actually worse for Job. Elizabeth herself has been tested positive for COVID-19. She um, doesn't have any symptoms, uh, but maybe that's just yet. We don't know, and she doesn't know. Uh, Job similarly lost um, his children, and then he was afflicted with terrible illness. And uh, at one point, he's he's there just scraping his wounds with rocks. And, you know, we don't know. We don't know, and, and, and I hope uh, that we don't encounter anything like that in our congregation uh, or anywhere in, in this area. But we don't know. And it's a, and it's a reminder that, wh- you know, whatever we think is happening or will happen, like, that, that life is not guaranteed, and tragedy can strike. And, and you and I and all of us, in, in some way or another, may be faced with the, the task, the enormous task of coming alongside people like Elizabeth Fusco, like Job, who are in the midst of absolute crisis. And we may be asked 
to be with them. We, we might be the ones who are, and, and the, what's fascinating about Job is that Job tells the story of how um, four people, five if you count, uh, I guess five people, try to come alongside Job in various ways. And what's, what's awful about it is all of them do an awful job. They do a terrible job. This is, um, this is a picture from, from William Blake. He was a, a romantic poet and also artist. He uh, was tortured by Christianity, and a lot of his art involves religious themes. I love this piece because it depicts Job, and you can see Job's in the middle, and he's looking up to God with this face of like innocence, like, what is going on? And then to his left is his wife, who's looking at him being like, what's wrong with you? And then it's his three buddies. We're going to meet um, two of them today, Eliphaz, uh, Bildad, and Zophar. We're going to hear from Eliphaz and Bildad. Um, but what Blake captures is the way that these friends come alongside him, and, and they're telling him what's going on. And you can see the condemnation in their faces. And so I invite you, we're going we're gonna to hear what, what Job's wife says, a couple things that Bildad says, uh, something that Eliphaz says, and then there's a third uh, or a fourth friend who's not really a friend, Elihu, we'll discuss him in, at the very end where, where he also comes in. And I just, I just want us to see what not to do. Next week we're going to hit, Job does have a, a portion where we, we know what to do with um, someone who's in crisis. But, but t- today we're going to see what not to do. And so let's start, uh, let's start out with uh, Job's wife. This is in Job 2. Uh, Job's wife said to him, Are you still clinging to your integrity? Curse God and die. Job said to her, you're talking like a foolish woman. Will we receive good from God, but not also receive bad? In all this, Job didn't sin with his lips. Before we, uh, you know, take a shot at Job's wife, we need to remember that what she's going through too, because she's also just lost uh, 10 children. She's also just lost all of their property. And now her husband is not there to support her because he's wounded and and sick, and, and he's lying on the ground in ashes. And so I, I don't think that she's a bad person. I think that she's a normal person. And I think that she's going through what any normal person would go through when they're experiencing this horror. In the 90s, uh, I, I drove a, a Ford Mustang. And I was made fun of for it. I was made fun of driving a Ford. Uh, because Fords were uh, apparently bad cars. Now, uh, starting in the... I have pictures here of, of, of Ford sedans through the... Um, through the years. In the top left, you can see a, a, Ford, a Ford sedan from 1950, and that's a beautiful automobile. This is probably the, the height of, of, you know, or moving to the height of Detroit as like the automaking capital of the world. In the top right is a 1960 Ford sedan, still a gorgeous piece of artwork. In the bottom left, you can see they're starting to lose it. That's 1970, and by the time you get to the bottom right, 1980, uh, Ford has really just dropped the ball. And as a result, Ford came to be known as Fix or Repair daily, F-O-R-D, fix or repair daily. They were garbage automobiles. And so, starting in the late 80s and early 90s, everyone abandoned Ford, all Americans abandoned Ford, and went to a much more reliable vehicle. That's the next slide. The, the, the Honda. This is a Honda Civic from 1990. Uh, the, the, most, the most reliable of all vehicles. And, and you know, not, not great to look at, but at least it didn't break down. 
Well, if you were a forward person, right, uh, this was a really challenging time in the 80s and 90s and into the 2000s when it looked like Ford was actually going out of business because they just couldn't sell cars anymore. And if you were like a diehard Ford fanatic, it was sad to watch. And you remembered the glory days. You remember back in 1950 when they were, when every automobile was a piece of art, it was glorious, and you watched this descent into failure and disaster. And at the same time, you're like, I can't believe that everyone's, you know, flocking to these Japanese automobiles, and, and you feel forlorn and lost. Well, Job's wife is one of these people who's not a diehard Ford person. She loved a 1950s Ford because it was beautiful. She loved the 1960s Ford because it was still great. She started to lose faith in the 70s, and by the 80s, she said, I'm done, get me a Honda. Because she's no longer getting the car that she wants. She wants a reliable automobile, and this car is, you know, it's failing her. And so she's like, you know what? I'm done with you. I'm moving on. This is what she means when she says, curse God and die. She's like, hey, Job, I get it. Yeah, we should totally worship God when he's doing good stuff for us. But when he fails, when he gets out, when he stops doing what we ask him to do, move on. There's better gods out there. Maybe there's no gods, but we sure don't owe him anything. And if you had note sheets, it would be the first thing in your note sheets. Job's wife's advice. God's not doing anything for you, so why should you do anything for him? In 21st century terms, when uh, we're faced with somebody who's dramatically impacted by the coronavirus, they might be sitting around being like, what? What is going on? Why did this happen to me? And, and one answer is, well, who knows? But one thing we do know is that you shouldn't trust God anymore because God's failed you. If, you, if, if there's a God out there, then that God's not very good, and you need to find a better one. And maybe that's, you know, chaos and evolution. Maybe it's uh, psychotherapy. Maybe there's some other thing that can make sense of life. But sure, what, one thing we can be sure of is that God's not there for you. And you better get used to that fact. Now, obviously, as Christians, we were going to say that's pretty bad advice. But let's just assume for the sake of argument. Let's just say that we're true. Doesn't that seem like an odd way to be with Job in his suffering? Like, even if, even if she were right, I don't think she is, but even if, if Job's wife were right, I think she's just, she's devastated, and so she's just saying stuff. I, but even if she were right, what a horrible way to move through this crisis. Job's sitting there and she's like, well, let's just give up. When she says die, it's because uh, she, she's thinking that, that, that Job's kind of hanging on to God. And, and, and the only reason Job's life has been spared probably is because he's still hanging on to God. And so she's like, just get rid of God and then go die because your, your faithfulness to him has ruined everything. Well, needless to say, Job, Job, did, Job needed something different. Uh, Job's, Job's wife did not provide the comfort that Job needed. Uh, but fortunately for him, three of his friends who I mentioned, Zophar, Bildad, and Eliphaz, came to, to comfort him and to, and to give him advice to help him work through this awful situation. And so let's look at what Bildad says to him. This is from Job 8. Bildad from Shua responded, How long will you mouth such things that your utterances become a strong wind? He's like, you're just, you're hot air, Job. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty distort what is right? If your children sinned against them, then he delivered them into the power of their rebellion. If you'll search eagerly for God, plead with the Almighty. If you're pure and do the right thing, surely he will become active on your behalf and reward your innocent dwelling. 
I don't know if you noticed there, but Bildad just told Job, well, the reason that your kids are dead is because they deserved it. What's really crazy about this, I mean, as, as far as, I mean, Bildad believes this, by the way. Bildad believes, um, and we're going to go on to see a little bit more about what he believes, but he believes that God is 100% just, and God cannot in any way tolerate sin. And so when, when sin happens, God punishes it. And so when Bildad looks at what's happened to Job, he realizes very quickly that the reason that Job's children are dead is because they sinned and they deserved it. Now, at the end of Job, we're going to find out that Bildad was wrong, okay? At the very end of Job, God's, God's going to come, and he's going to tell Bildad and Zophar and Eliphaz, he's going to say, you guys were absolutely wrong. You don't know anything about me. You should just you should shut your mouths and be ashamed. So we know that Bildad's wrong. But let's just assume for the sake of argument that he, is, that he was right. Because I think we can all agree that there, there are consequences to sin. And we've seen it in our lives. We've seen it in the lives of others. And we do know that there is a kind of justice to the universe. And sometimes God allows or perhaps even like actively punishes people who are off the track. But even if that were the case, wow, what a, what a tremendous way to help your friend. Some people uh, right now have actually seen these uh, these these Christians who are uh, who've floated the theory that uh, the reason that COVID nineteen is spreading throughout the world is because um, especially the Chinese and the Italians have have sinned. They're evil, and this is God's punishment on them. I think that's a pretty bold thing to say, and um, given the example of Bildad and Job, I think it's something you should never say uh, unless you really know for sure. Uh, but but even even if, if that were true, even if it were true that the reason that, that uh, this random virus that comes from, I guess, eating bat soup, that, that, that that's somehow the, the judgment of God and people's you know siblings and mother are dying, to, to say, oh, I know how we can help here. They deserved it. This is a good thing that they're gone. That's sick. Bildad's not done. Uh, Bildad later on. This is so that was Job eight. This is like Job twenty five. This is a long time later. The 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 time that's spent with Job and his friends occupies most of the book of Job. It's like 20, 30 chapters of them going back and forth. Uh, but this is uh, near the end of Bildad when uh, he finally just shows all of his cards. He says, uh, Bildad from Shewa replied, the supreme power and awe belong to God. He establishes peace on his heights. Can his troops be counted? On whom does his light not rise? How can a person be innocent before God? How could one born of a woman be pure? If even the moon is not bright and stars not pure in his eyes, how much less a human, a worm, a person's child, a grub? This is actually um, 
especially in American uh, Reformed theology, Bildad's uh, second theory is actually very popular. And, and there may be some of you who believe this at some level. See, what Bildad thinks is he, he, he believes that human beings are hopelessly, in, hopelessly evil. That there's nothing, what, what American Christians will say things like this, um, apart from Christ, there is nothing in us that is in any way good. We're wholly and completely corrupt. Um, we are just evil. I'm not sure I buy that, um, but I could imagine it. I, I could understand where that thinking comes from. I, I, I don't, I don't, I get it. And, and one of the reasons that we in the United States of America and American evangelicalism have this is because the premier theologian in American history was Jonathan Edwards, and he was a Puritan. Uh, you may have heard of him. Jonathan Edwards uh, preached a famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And in this sermon, he basically said, if you think about how holy God is, you think about how wonderful he is, how perfect he is, how awesome he is, and you just meditate on that, and then you think, that, think about yourself, you realize that even the slightest flaw in you is magnified a million times. And, and, and that really, if God, were, if God were just, he would murder all of us immediately and torture us for eternity. And he says this, he says, literally all of us right now at a spiritual level are being hung over hell and the devil is reaching up to grab us and, and, and torture us, which is what we deserve, which, is, which would be a good thing if it happens. Now, I, I, have, um, I, I can understand why people think this, um, and, and, I'm, and maybe at some abstract level it might be true, but I am troubled because I know that the Bible consistently teaches over and over that God is a loving God uh, and that God loves humanity, however flawed we may or may not be. Um, and, and, and surely even in the book of Job, like the whole point of the book is, is, is the beginning. The narrator tells us Job's a really great guy. He's as good as they come. And maybe it's, it's true that at some abstract level that, you know, Job's kids and Job, they all deserve this. Maybe that's true. I have reasons to doubt it. But even if that were true, what a way to comfort your friend. Because what Bildad is essentially saying is he's like, hey, uh, Job, what you really should be doing is be grateful that, you know, you're not dead because you really deserve to be. God didn't finish the job when he squashed your grubs. You see, Job, you're a worm too. I'm a worm. And God is completely within his rights to go around smashing us I have a hard time squaring that with, um, you know, like 93% of what I see in the Bible, but I can understand how someone could come to that conclusion. But wow, what a theory. Stop whining, be grateful. You're a worm, your kids are grubs. You deserve death and worse compared to God. At this point, you might be wondering, does, could Job find some better friends? 
Like in the ancient world, and part of it too is that the ancient world is not like a place where friendship's based on, you know, we assume that friendship is like based on mutual interests and we kind of get along and we like hanging out together. The ancient world's not like that. The ancient world friendship is much more contractual. And so if someone's done something for you, then they're sort of obligated to be your friend. Um, and so it's very possible that, that, uh, that Zophar, Bildad, and Eliphaz are friends in the sense that, uh, they, they have certain con- contractual obligations to Job, but they may not really like him, which would help explain why they say the stuff that they do. Because this is this is pretty rough. This is not. These are not the. Wow. This is not how friends operate. Eliphaz. Eliphaz uh, gets gets closer uh, to the truth, but but not quite there. Uh, Eliphaz from Timon answered, Can a human being be useful to God? Can an intelligent person bring profit? Does the Almighty delight in your innocence? Does he gain when you perfect your ways? What Eliphaz's point is, is it's like, Job, no matter how good you are, is that do anything for God? Like, God's already perfect. Like, does God, like, is God impressed with your piety? Not really. Does he rebuke you for your piety? Bring in for judgment? And then this is where he gets to it. Isn't your wickedness massive? Your iniquity endless? You've taken payments from your family for no reason. You've stripped the naked, leaving no clothes. You've denied water to the thirsty, withheld bread from the starving. Before we jump to the next, uh, the continuation of this text, we should notice that what Eliphaz is saying is patently untrue, right? At the very beginning, we're told Job is like the nicest dude ever. So how is it that Eliphaz is, is accusing him of these things? Well, the answer is uh, in, there in verse 8. Uh, so go to the next. It's in parentheses here in this translation. The powerful own the lands. The favored live in it. Job is a wealthy guy. And he, and, and so he, or he was. And so he had lots of land and he had lots of resources. And one of the things that Job and anyone who was wealthy in the ancient world would do would invite some people who couldn't survive on their own to come onto their property and to live with them and to survive on their resources. And presumably Job did this. What Eliphaz is saying is he's saying, you didn't do enough, Job. Every time someone came who was thirsty and you didn't let them live on your property, you were literally denying them Thirst. If you'd had more faith, Job, if you believed in God more, then you would have trusted that God would provide the water and you would have invited that person on. And because you haven't, because you didn't, you've sent widows away empty. You've crushed orphans' resources. It's sort of an odd way of going about it, but what Eliphaz is telling Job is he's like, Job, you weren't a good enough guy, you were lazy. You should have done more. You should have believed more. My all-time favorite comic book movie is uh, Spider-Man 2. Always will be. Sam Raimi, Tommy McGuire. I like the new kid, Tom Holland, uh, for, for Spider-Man. He's not bad, but Toby is always going to be my guy. Spider-Man 2 is a fascinating movie because it, it, it really hits the, the, the heart of what it is to be Peter Parker. Peter Parker, if you don't know, was, uh, if you don't know who Peter Parker is, you need to go, you have a bad education. You're bad, yeah. Uh, but Peter Parker was a kid in high school. He got bit by a radioactive spider. He gets spider powers, right? And the first thing that Pete does once he gets spider powers is uh, he tries to use it to make money for himself. And somehow in the middle of that, he lets like a robber go free. Um, and, and, and this robber goes and shoots his uncle and kills him. And as his uncle is dying, Peter is, you know, finds him and is holding him, and his uncle is looking at him, and he says, Peter, with great power comes great responsibility. You can't just be a normal guy. You've been given spider powers. 
And so as a result, your life needs to be spent using those powers, those gifts, to bless everybody else. And in Spider-Man 2, part of the, the problem is, is that Pete is taking that so seriously, he's burning himself out. He's becoming, he, like, he's exhausted because he can't do anything for himself. He's, there's always another crime, right? There's always another robbery. It's New York City. The place is a disaster. And so what, no matter how good he tries to be, he's still leaving some people behind. He's still failing. Eliphaz is talking to Job and saying, Job, you need to be more like Pete. You weren't good enough. You had all this stuff and you, you could have been even better and you weren't. And so as a result, Job, this bad stuff is happening to you. Mm. My understanding is that if you have a severe case of uh, COVID-19, one of the things that happens is it feels like you can't breathe. Uh, so one of the symptoms is a, uh, it's a dry, hacking cough from the chest. And eventually, uh, wheezing. And in a lot of cases for people who either uh, pass from the disease or get close to passing, uh, they, are, they feel like they're suffocating and then they collapse. One of the interesting things about uh, Eliphaz is that, you know, in some cases... Again, what he's saying might be true, right? Like it might be true that, that Job could have done more. He could have had more faith. I mean, it seems like probably everyone could have done more and had more faith. If Eliphaz were here in the 21st century and Job started to collapse from COVID-19, he would bend down and he would hold Job's hand and, and he would say, if you believed more, this wouldn't be happening to you. And let's just give it, fine. Okay, Eliphaz, let's just say that's true. Let's say that God was looking around and, you know, and what actually happened, although again, at the end, God tells Eliphaz, you were completely wrong. You should be ashamed of yourself. Shut your mouth. Um, but let's just say he's right. Wow. Again, what a, what a way to really get Job through. Be like, Job, you know, you, 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 you sacrificed um, for all of your kids, when they were having parties, and you gave just tremendous amounts of gifts to God, but you know you could have done more. Um, and 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 you know while you're in this life and death situation, maybe you should treat this as sort of a wake up call, right, Job? As you're struggling for air and and wondering whether or not you're going to die, you should you should really consider whether or not you've been as faithful as you could be, as good as you could be. I mean, we don't know this, but maybe, maybe at some point in Job's life, after all this happens and goes, maybe he does look at this experience that he goes through, and maybe he comes to the conclusion, you know, I, I, life is short, and nothing's guaranteed, and I really should make, you know, 
put even more of an emphasis on, on worship and service and giving. I, maybe that happens to Job. Maybe that, maybe that, that does happen someday. We, it's not in the text anywhere, so we don't know. But it's certainly possible that that might happen. And certainly possible for, for maybe Elizabeth Fusco and, and her family. Maybe at some point in the future, they're going to come back and she's going to realize, you know, one, one of the things that this experience, this horror has taught me is that I really do need to trust God more. I do need to be, you know, taking advantage of the gifts. Maybe that happens. But what a terrible way to help her get through the loss of her siblings and her mom. The last um, person we're going to meet today is Elihu. Elihu's name uh, means my God is he. Um, It's a variation on Elijah, whose name means um, my God is Yahweh. He's a young man, and when we're introduced to him, he's been sitting there kind of overhearing uh, the elders as they're all talking, right? So Zophar and Bildad and Eliphaz have been yelling at Job. Job's been yelling back at them, and he's been quiet because he's a young man. He's not one of Job's friends. He's, um, but he's there, and he's listening. And finally, at the, near the end of Job, he just spouts off. And he goes for several chapters. And interestingly, a couple things to know. Uh, number one, it's right after he stops talking that God answers Job. So keep that in mind. And the second thing is, at the end, when God uh, comes down and tells Zophar and Bildad and, and, and Eliphaz, you guys are awful, shut your mouths, like, and sit down and apologize, God does not condemn Elihu. Elihu's left out of that. God doesn't say, Elihu, great job, but he doesn't say, Elihu, you don't know what you're talking about, shut your mouth. And I think we're going to see the reason is that actually Elihu, for a young man, actually kind of has the right advice. This is just a small selection, but I think it captures it. Uh, people cry out because of heavy oppression, shout under the power of the mighty. But no one says, where's God my maker? Who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth, makes us wiser than the birds in the sky. What Elihu is saying is he's like, when, when, tr- when tragedy strikes, when, when oppression hits, instead of, instead of, you know, complaining, instead of, what, this is an opportunity to say, God, I need you to answer. You're the one who provides wisdom. You've done all this. Only you can tell me what's going on. Elihu says, uh, people might cry out, but God doesn't answer because of the pride of the wicked. God certainly doesn't respond to a deceitful cry. Almighty doesn't pay attention to that. And then he, but he exempts Job. He says, although you say you don't see him, the case is before him, so wait anxiously for God. Elihu is sitting there, he's like, Job, I don't know if you're guilty or not. I don't know if you're righteous enough. I don't know any, I think all the stuff they're saying is nonsense. I don't know what's going on with you. I don't think anybody does. But I do know this. No one can give you an answer but God. He's right. He's totally right. No one knows why coronavirus is out there. No one knows what's happening. I mean, don't you just love, like, I'm telling you, I just, I, because we got nothing else to do, we watch more news, which makes it even worse. And they, and they contradict each other. They've all got theories. Everyone knows what's up, and they all no one knows what's up. It's it's the most, it's unbelievable how you know. Talk about the death of expertise. Like at some point, it, can someone just stand up and be like, "Hey, no one knows what's going on." Like how refreshing that would that be? 
So what's Elihu up to? Well, he's telling the truth. He's like, Job, I don't know. The only one who can give you an answer is God. All I can tell you is that I, I'm sure that God's good. Just hang in there. And sooner or later, he's going to show up. That's good advice. But, is that really what Job needs right now? You're sitting there, Job's wheezing on the floor, and he doesn't know if he's going to make it. You're like, hey, Job, no one knows why this is happening. Just wait on God. Just do it. <laughs> There's this uh, this great YouTube video. I mean, it's super sexist, and so you probably... No, I don't know. If you haven't seen it, it's called It's Not the Nail. And uh, it's, it's a very funny video where... Um, a husband and a wife are sitting on the couch and the wife um, is like, she's like, I just don't know what's going on, but for the last week, um, I've just had this incredible pain in my head. It's like pulsating and it's just radiating from my forehead and I just don't know what's going on. And the husband's looking at her and, and she has a nail in her forehead and so he's like, um, do, you, do you want me to pull that nail out of your forehead? Do you think that might help? She's like, you're not listening. For two weeks now, I, every time I wake up, from the time I wake up to the time I go to sleep, I, there's this pounding in my skull. I can't, it's gotten to the point where I can't focus on my work, I can't focus on my family, and I'm really starting to lose it. And he's like, well, if you want, I, maybe I could just, I have a hammer, we could just pull it right out, pull the nail out and see if that helps. And then she looks at him and she finally goes, it's not the nail. It's not about the nail. And what that's supposed to illustrate is that, yeah, at some level she totally gets that the nail is the problem, but that's not what she wants from her husband, right? What she needs from her husband is for him to commiserate with her, not to fix her problem. And the reason I say it's sexist is because this obviously happens the other way around too. There's plenty of times where I'm sitting there like complaining about whatever and, 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 Aaron may or may not have a solution to that, but that's not what I want. I don't want to solve my problems. I want to be able to just hurt, just complain. I just want someone to listen. I don't want you to fix it. The crazy thing about Elihu, Elihu's right. He nails it. The only person who can answer you, Job, is God. And that's gonna be a, it's going to be something that you have to go through with God. You're going to have to endure this and you're going to have to come to some conclusion with God about why this is happening or, or maybe you're going to have to give up even trying to figure it out. But that's a journey that only you and God can have. Elihu's right. 
And he's also right when he says sooner or later God is going to show up in some way. Job, you know, God literally is going to come and tell Job what's up. That, that's a possibility. Maybe it's going to be sometime in the future, you know, for us when we're trying to figure out why did God allow coronavirus, maybe we're going to see amazing things and we'll be like, oh, wow, now we see why God allowed this and, and, and why this happened. We can see that, that as Doug was, you know, uh, talking about earlier, it causes revival or, or, or something like that. Maybe we can see it. Maybe that happens. But what we need right now is not for someone to be like, oh, well, I, 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 got, it. I got it figured out for you. Hey, just let me pull the nail out. Let me do that. No, what we need right now, what everyone needs right now is for someone to sit there and be like, you know what? This really sucks. And I'm sorry. The crazy thing about Bildad and Zophar and Eliphaz and Elihu is that in some, depending on where you are in the Bible, all of those answers are sometimes given for reasons why people suffer. Now, God tells us that Bildad and Zophar and Eliphaz are wrong and kind of implies that Elihu might be right. But that's not the point. It's not about being right. It's not about fixing things. It's about being there. It's about listening. What Job needs is for someone to hold his hand and cry with him. And maybe uh, the Fusco family, Elizabeth Fusco, maybe um, that family is sort of a a harbinger of what's to come? Maybe not. I hope not. But if Elizabeth were part of our congregation, what she doesn't need is for a reporter to be like, how do you feel? She doesn't need someone to be like, like wow, you know, um, guess what? We've got, uh, we've got some stuff working on. We're we think we're going to have a, a vaccine in a year. Uh, it's going to stop the spread of this virus. But she doesn't need someone to be like, hey, guess what? Uh, chlor- chloroquine or cloniquine or chronoquine, whatever the anti-malaria, we got some good tests on that. Might be able to turn around the virus. Uh, so we've we got the best people in charge. We've got a plan to figure it out. Everything's going to be fine if you just trust us. That's not what she needs to hear. Elizabeth needs to hear, this sucks. And I'm sorry. Would you like me to help you make dinner? A lot of us are wondering what we can do uh, right now. Um, and, 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 Go back to the email I sent this week, but um, you know, if if you are struggling financially or you're about to because you've lost work, you need to let me know. This congregation is going to be there for you. Um, if you're in a, a, a situation where um, you are not supposed to leave the home, uh, especially if you're elderly uh, or immunocompromised, let us know. We'll get you groceries. Um, I'll make Ryan Gates wear some gloves and a mask and just drop them off and not even talk to you unless you want to talk to him. Um, 
we've got people who want to help. If you're feeling isolated and distant, um, we've already started doing virtual meetings. We did our prayer breakfast on, on uh, Friday uh, virtually, and I'm trying to plan some, some more opportunities like that. And also, 6.45 seems like it was a little early. John was like, that seems crazy since none of us are going to work. Uh, we should maybe do it later. And he's not wrong about that, so maybe we'll make it 9 this week or something like that. Um, but there's going to be opportunities to come. And yeah, it's not the same thing as being there face-to-face and uh, eating bad bacon at Denny's, but um, it's, it's, it's something. And it's a way to remember that you're, you're a part of a community and we're praying for each other and we're lifting things up to God. But part of what we just need to do is we encounter people who are really suffering, even if it's fear, if it's economic disruption because of loss of jobs, whatever it is, what, what, they don't need you to tell them how to fix their lives. We need to just be with them. And next week, Job's going to show us how we do that. Let's pray. Gracious God, we um, acknowledge that this is a time of a lot of fear and uncertainty. It's unprecedented. Um, There's a lot of uh, confusion, anger, and now we're beginning to see a lot of loss. We pray, God, for those who are um, in the midst of loss, especially so many in uh, Italy, especially in the Lombardy region in China, now New York and New Jersey and Washington and here in California. We just ask for comfort for people to come and and be with and to love on and not fix um, the tragedies that are are taking place. We pray that we'll continue to be courageous and and keep on doing what we do and being who we are as we uh, face uh, this together, even as we're physically apart. We bless you, God, and we thank you for the gift of your spirit that unites us across time and space with all of your saints. And know that one day we will all be united for eternity in heaven with you and with each other. In Jesus' name, amen.